Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Dickens Olewe, and uh, thank you for joining us. Nanjala, thank you for, um, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been looking forward to this. And uh, I'm so uh, looking forward to speak for the next, uh, you know, speak with you and also bringing the audience questions for the next uh, hour and a half. Um, but uh, maybe before, you know, the, I think the best way to start this is, you know, maybe you could just read a uh, couple of pages. Hi, everyone. Good evening from Nairobi. It's almost, um, it's just gone 10 p.m. here in Nairobi. So if I start uh, mumbling, it's because it's way past my bedtime. Um, I wanted to read from you from one of the essays that was probably the most difficult to write, but I feel in some ways the most necessary and, and probably one of the ones that I so far has produced the most um, visceral reaction in readers. So this is from page 111. I'm writing this essay as a tribute to a writer that I love, who moved through the world but struggled to live fully in it, and for whom home remained elusive throughout her life. Her country of birth chewed her up and spat her out, under a barrage of injustice, only to deify her after her death. The place to which she fled subjected her to frequent reminders that she was an outsider and foreign. And the moment she began to make serious progress as a writer, until the moment she began to make serious progress as a writer. And then, just when she was about to reap the rewards of her hard work, she was gone. I think a lot about the arc of Bessie Head's life and what it means for writers everywhere. Is there any lesson to be gleaned from someone who gave her entire life to her vocation, even under the glare of one of the harshest political regimes in history? Is there something we can learn from someone who gave her whole heart to her writing, only to die alone at the penniless? Was there a point or a purpose? What does this story mean for the belief that everything happens for a reason and that everything has to amount to something? Writing is a strange calling. Writers are by their very nature outsiders. You have to be extremely comfortable with solitude and being misunderstood. Yet it is that compulsion to be seen and understood that makes a person study the contours of language and learn how to use it to cut through the undergrowth of the world. It takes a special form of madness to lock yourself up in a room for 12 to 18 hours a day, weeks and end, speaking to nobody and committing words to the page in the hopes that at some point, someone will pick them up, will pick up what you're putting down and feel a sense of resonance. The money's terrible. Acclaim is sparse. No one remains a writer because they think it will make their life easier. Most of the time, it is that compulsion that Orwell identified in his essay, Why I Write. Writing a book, he said, is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout of some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven on by some demon whom one can neither resist nor understand. He must be right, because Head gave everything to her writing and it gave her nothing in return. Isn't that oh. depressing? <laughs> <laughs> well, th thanks for that, thank you for that. Um, everyone again, uh, welcome. And um, uh, like I said, I'm really keen to get as many questions um, that you have for Angela throughout this session. So, so please, you know, uh, do, do use the uh, Q and A um, uh, slot there. And Nanjala, again, thank you. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and um, I think it was powerfully written. Uh, I found it it was vast and deep, 
And my impression of it was that it was kind of like, um, you know, kind of like an invitation to reflect on our, you know, daily choices, our biases, our humanity. And, you know, it was not one of those that you say, this is kind of like rearranging chairs in a room. You know, it was kind of like, um, you know, kind of like a proper surgical experience, you know, uh, peeling back layers of uh, what I would probably call like power structures. And, uh, and you're really encouraging us not to be passive travelers, but to really um, engage, listen, and to challenge ourselves. And I think maybe the best place for us to start is, you know, we are in the middle of a, of a global pandemic, which has kind of changed and impacted our lives in, in ways imaginable. And after I finished reading your book, I did wonder, um, and pretty much I was just got curious, is there a country that you plan to visit uh, this year uh, before everything closed down, which you think that, you know, it would have probably given you some experience that likely would have ended up in your book? I, I just have to pick one. I can't give you a list of 10. Um, so actually, I travel a lot um, in my work. Um, and this year I was, I had a list of about four or five countries that I was gonna go to for the first time. And one of, of those four or five, one of the ones that I was intensely curious about was actually Australia. Um, because I'd never been to the South Pacific. I'd never been to, I'd never been to um, that sort of part of the world. And Australia has always been really interesting to me because it has, in, in the framework of, of some of the stuff I talk about in the books, it has one of the harshest immigration policies in the world. Um, one of the ones that, you know, people who work in this space advocates will hold up as one of the most cruel, really, um, when you're talking about detaining people on islands indefinitely. Um, we're talking about, you know, very long, open-ended uh, asylum processes. And like one of the things that I write about in the book is the disconnect between official government policies and day-to-day -day experiences and what people who have to live in these countries kind of experience. And sometimes one flows organically from one to the other and sometimes it's completely different. So I really wanted to experience Australia because everything that I've seen about migration policy, refugee policy, um, you know, travel policy in Australia has been hostile. And like the, the, um, the applicant, these application process, I went through the application process and then the trip was canceled. Literally, they closed the borders the day before I was supposed to go. And the visa application process for Australia was the hardest one that I've ever done to date. Um, and I remember I texted an Australian friend of mine and I said, Australia is the last demon you have to slay before you can reach visa nirvana. Cause you kind of, you know, to, you know, you think the US is hard and then you do the UK and then you think the UK is hard and then you do Canada and then you think Canada is hard and then you do, and then you end up with Australia as like the last sort of, um, demon that you have to conquer. And I did the visa application process. It was very invasive, it was very intrusive. And then I, I feel like had I gone, I would have at least been able to justify the time, the expense, it was very expensive. Um, and I didn't get my money back Australia. Um, and, 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 but the, the, the cost of course is more than just money, right? It's the time that you spend running around and getting these documents together, it's the intellectual labor, it's bearing yourself open for a bureaucracy in order to be sort of 
given a stamp of approval that you are good. And so that's, of, of all the places, um, I was also supposed to go to Iceland and I was supposed to go to Brazil, but of all of those places, I mean, Australia really was the one that I was most sort of looking at intellectually as well as this is a trip that I'm taking for work and things. It's the one that I wanted to have that experience in order to enrich my understanding of some of the stuff that I talk about. You know, you, you just kind of like reminded me something you said in the book, which kind of uh, really, you know, I read it and kind of like, wow, that was, that's really an interesting way of looking at it. You know, this, uh, as, as a black person, uh, you know, traveling around the world, and especially where you're a minority, especially in the Western world, you likely get, might get somebody shouting at, you know, uh, at you, you know, go back where you came from. And what you mm -hmm. said was, there is kind of like, what's, what kind of, uh, uh, you know, what that actually means is kind of like implying that you as a black African person should be confined within Africa and absolutely should not be, you should not travel within those borders. And yeah, so, so can we just reflect on that? Because I, I thought that was really a, a really interesting take. You know, this is, it was one of those things that when I was writing it, I kept thinking, is this a conversation that I want to have in public? This is a conversation that I want to keep having in private. But mm -hmm. I thought it was something, it was a provocation that was necessary and timely. And my perspective, this is why I, I emphasize throughout the book that my perspective is informed by many years of working with refugee populations. And we have this romanticized ideas of home sometimes. And those of us who have a measure of privilege um, sometimes have very romantic ideas of what it means to be at home in our own countries so that we are able to travel freely, we're able to own property, we're able to, um, you know, in or out, open bank accounts, do all these things. And we think, you know, this is bliss, this is heaven. But I was looking at the idea of home from the perspective of vulnerable people, of the people who choose, who are really, when what Warsim Shira calls, when home is the mouth of a shark. And your choice is really staying in the mouth of the shark or trying to find some kind of peace. And I was looking at the world from those perspectives and seeing that we have to really start to de-romanticize the idea of home. And we have to start asking uncomfortable questions about how our countries and our societies and our world can make home completely unpalatable for millions, if not billions of people. Mm. And especially when it comes to Africa, I think I understand, I wanted to show that I understand the logic behind it. I understand because when you are an African, a lot of the times it feels like you are, you are constantly under assault through other people's ignorance. You're under assault from other people's ignorance and other people's sort of um, disrespect. And it's just constantly, you saw what happened with COVID. It was like everybody was waiting for Africa to fail. Um, you, you see what happened when, when the Ebola outbreak happened in a handful of countries, the entire continent gets banned. And so there's this sense that you always have to be on ready to defend the idea of Africa. But I wanted to complicate that notion and I wanted to make people, a, a couple of people uncomfortable because there's, the people are leaving and people are dying. You know, between 2016 and 2019, 17,000, at least 17,000 people, Africans, died in the Mediterranean Sea. And we have to be honest about the fact that this, not everything is, you know, champagne and butterflies on the continent. 
but there's challenges. And I wanted it to be an invitation for people to start thinking about Africa as more than the anti-Europe in the sense that we can't just be on the defensive. We have to populate the idea of home with something that is positive, something that is proactive, something that is, is defined by more than what it is not. You know, like, and, and that's, that's the invitation there is, okay, fine. Even if we accept all of these criticisms, uh, even, or rather even if we are rejecting all of these criticisms and this unfair harshness and this unfair um, judgments that are inflicted upon African societies, what is it, what is the positive that is occupying that space? We have to resist the tendency, I think, of seeing Africa as a negative space a negative, not in the normative sense, but negative in the sense of they're not always being defined by what it's not and have to start the process of, well, what, who are we? What is this space that we, what are the values that define us? What are the principles that define our societies? What are the practices that define our societies? How do you think And so that? I really, I think we, I hope that what I've done is a starting point. And to just stop with the lazy sort of blithe like catchphrases. You know, Robert Mugabe goes to the AU or to um, the UN and he gives these long speeches that are just catchphrase after catchphrase after catchphrase after catchphrase about what it means to be an African. And I think to that, well, Bob Mugabe was at the time, you know, he's an 85-year-old man who has lived in a gilded cage for the better part of the last 30 years and doesn't know what it is to be hungry doesn't know what it is to be scared and doesn't know what it is to be um, searching for a sense of orientation in the world and, and not, having, not having it there because it conflicts with the political interests of powerful people. So I, I think what we start with is with discomfort. We start by being uncomfortable. We start by asking ourselves uncomfortable questions about who we are when the world is not looking and who we are when we are not in defensive mode, but who we are when we are amongst ourselves and we are trying to build something positive. So, um, so the the other bit that um, you know I kind of uh, related to was uh, when you, when you went to Palermo, mm -hmm. um, and and there you were seeing this massive cargo ship dock. And then out came, um, you know, a queue of uh, young Africans, you know, walking out, uh, you know, obviously have, you know, those rescued crossing the Mediterranean. Mm. And if I uh, get, uh, I think what you said was they look like slaves. Mm. And that kind of, you know, I've kind of related to that because uh, uh, last year I was, uh, with a colleague, I went to to Italy to cover. You know, we came up with doing a documentary about being black in Italy, um, and went to Milan Central Station, and there were all these, uh, uh, you know, Africa young Africans who would travel, you know, across the Mediterranean, and they were, um, you know, just outside the Milan Central Station, and I did wonder. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm curious about what standing there, seeing them. And what was that experience like for you? And, and what did you actually see there? So I can say without fear of contradiction that going to Italy, going to Palermo to 
witness this boat arrival changed me fundamentally. And it, it changed me not because I had never seen it before, because I had been working with near uh, refugee populations for a long time. Um, I had been to refugee camps in Kenya. I'd been to refugee camps in Ethiopia. Um, I had been to, you know, migrant facilities in parts of Europe. And, but I, I don't think I had ever seen someone at the point of arrival. I don't think I'd ever seen someone at the point of, you know, you're still carrying the baggage of the journey. And the first thing that I, I, I kind of detail some of the, the thought processes that went through my mind, but literally that's where the first, my brain, because I had been to the slave museum, I've been to many, I've been to Zanzibar, I've been uh, Elmina in Ghana, um, in, you know, in the national, uh, in the United States, um, I'd seen like all of these exhibitions and things like that. So I had the images in my head. And the thing that I kept asking myself was, the first thing that I noticed was that these guys look like they're my age. These are, these are people that could have been my classmates, could have been my neighbors growing up. And then came, you know, myself in the story, like, I don't come from money. Like, I, I, you know, I have a working class background. And I kept thinking to myself, it's literally just like one or two degrees. It's literally just like one or two steps. Being born on this side of the border with Ethiopia as opposed to being born on the other side of the border with Ethiopia. You know, citizenship, nationality is purely accidental. It's really just an accident of being born mm on on one side of a line and as opposed to the other and that tenuousness that tenuousness makes you realize the importance of buildings it made me realize afresh the importance of building systems that work for everybody because it could be it really could be you i i think that people want and again another reason why it was so important for me to write that essay for me personally was People don't see people, you know? You, you see the numbers and you say, well, 3,000 people died and you see this and then, or, or you see the distress, right? You see these videos of, of people on the high seas screaming for their babies and screaming for whatever, but we don't think that those people had a story before they got there. And so for me, that moment of standing there and seeing these people who could have been my high school classmate, who could have been my neighbor, you know, like not everybody in my neighborhood made it. Not everybody who I grew up with, um, you know, has a steady job and, and whatever. And so I think to myself, it, it really, for me, brought me back to people have stories that are bigger than, you know, our policy briefs and our whatever we want to do. And, um, but it also it made me really angry. Not, mm. I'm, I think in some ways I'm still very angry. I'm angry at politicians. I'm angry at leaders. I'm angry at people who allowed this stuff to happen. Because how can you let 17,000 people die because you want to make a point about your borders? Like, I just, pardon my French, but I just think that's bullshit. Like, and so I hope that when people read that essay, they have a sense of how angry I am, and how angry we all should be. Because you can't be screaming Black Lives Matter in Brussels and saying the EU supports Black Lives Matter and then allowing 3,000 people to die 
to make a point. And you, African governments can't be, you know, we stand with the Black Lives Matter, solidarity, whatever, and then create the circumstances that drive people to make these awful, awful journeys. I mean, honestly, Dickens, people were breaking down. Mm. Like, just the screaming. You know, I can still hear it. Because they're, and, and they're screaming because it's like they've been holding in all of this anxiety, stress, anger, frustration, blah, blah, blah. and then it's like a pressure valve. Suddenly it seems like the, the, the struggle is over so I can let all of this stuff out that I've been carrying for six months, four months, whatever. Um, so it's not that they're screaming because it's, it's, it really was just like releasing all of this pressure that I had been holding in because I have to survive. And yeah, I just hope that people sense my my anger mm-hmm. and I hope that it makes people angry too because it's such a shitty situation. I mean, it was, it was kind of like a different uh, story, but you know, you did just listening to you there, uh, there there's a, a bit when you're talking about uh, Bessie Head, you, uh, you say, uh, you know, she was basically a, an example of futility of genius without privilege. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I keep, one of the, th- so like Ilhan Omar, right? Ilhan Omar was a refugee in Kenya, was born in Somalia, was a refugee in Kenya um, for many years, goes to the United States and becomes this amazing trailblazing politician. Ilhan Omar, had she not left Kenya, would still be languishing in a camp with no pathway to citizenship, with no pathway to productive employment, not living up to her potential. So I think about people who claim her and say, you know, she's one of us, she's, and I think, no, because home was the mouth of a shark. Mm. And so that discomfort of the futility of genius, what if the cure for HIV AIDS, the cure for cancer and the cure for COVID-19 is in the mind of someone who is languishing in a refugee camp in Kenya, in Afghanistan, in you know uh, Hungary, whatever. Like we 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 have created these artificial barriers to success. You know, Albert Einstein was a refugee. Like you know, what Hannah Arendt was a refugee. Like we've created all of these artificial barriers that I think we don't realize in the long term undermine the existence of humanity in general. Mm. And, and I wanted to narrow down on Bessie Head because she is, to me and to anybody who sort of is a fan of literature, she is an unqualified genius. And she, for 15 years, was stateless had to show up at the police station every Monday for 15 years, you know, 52 times 15, every Monday, that humiliating ritual to say, I haven't run away. I'm not stealing your resources. And she, and now, you know, everybody's Bessie Head, Bessie Head, you know, Botswana, you go Bessie Head, Bessie Head. And you think, well, you know, she went through, she died because she was poor. Hmm. It literally broke her back. Um, poverty literally and 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 the hum- there's a letter that because uh, I spent three days with her papers there's a letter that she writes to the Botswana um, uh, government because she's trying to get her son to go to Canada to be with his father who had emigrated from South Africa to Canada 
And for about two years, the government kept denying her travel documents, kept denying her travel documents because she was stateless, because she was a refugee. And remember, she was stateless because the South African apartheid government had a rule that if you left, if you were politically active and you left, you had to give up your South African citizenship. So she didn't choose, you know, to leave the country. She was forced out and stripped of her citizenship. And she kept begging please let me travel, let me go and be a writer, let me go and do this, and no, 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 no. And so she writes this letter where she says, dead, uh, I, just forget about me, let my son go, dead people have no use for passports. She's already had this depressive cycle and she's saying, I just, I, I give up, just take my son and let me just die here. That is what's happening in men, some ways to millions of people around the world today. And I wanted that story in there in part for that reason. I wanted people to have a human face and a human arc to some of these things that we often think about in abstraction. It's a cliche for a reason. What if the solution to some of the most complex problems that we're facing in the world right now is inside the mind of someone who has to get up every morning at 4 a.m. to go and get water and sit in, a, you know, in the desert in the camp because they're not allowed freedom of movement. Like, you know, what if, what if, what if? So, yeah, I mean, that was also really, I don't know. I, I just, when I was, when I was reading her letters, when I was in the, I just, I, I, I remember just crying because I was so overwhelmed and I'm not a crier. So if I say that I'm crying, it's, it's, <laughs> I was really feeling a lot of things. And I, the archivist was confused. Like, why, why are you crying? I said, just what a waste. What a waste of a beautiful mind. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you, just in that context as well, I, I think you really went after Pan-Africanism, you know, this illusion uh, that, you know, as, as, you know as, as, as long as you're in Africa, you're safe. As long as you're in Africa, um, you know, you can go anywhere. And you really, really, like, you know, tore that apart. No. <laughs> How can that be fixed? Because it seems like um, it seems like you know, just you know, you can say in the sixties, seventies, there was this kind of you know really uh, strong, vibrant movement, um, uh, especially you know, countries uh, across the continent coming together, uh, rallying for Zimbabwe's independence, rallying for Mandela's uh, release. Uh, and all that, but do you feel like this is the, that has been lost and, and how can that be fixed? I think we're entering a new wave of Pan-Africanism. And I'm very encouraged by the young people in movements like, you know, Yon Marais and in, in Senegal and Lucha RDC in the DRC and all of these movements that are working together. I think I, I love Pan-Africanism. I love the philosophy of Pan-Africanism. What I don't like is how it has been instrumentalized by powerful men, and especially by powerful men, to hijack liber people's liberation dreams and to use them as kind of like a ring fence against any kind of criticism, against any kind of challenge, against any kind of invitation to do better by African people. And I, in, other, in another essay, I actually called it man-Africanism. 
because I think that what we're living under now is man-Africanism, is Bob Mugabe, it's all of these, you know, Omar al-Bashir, it's all of these people who are hijacking the one, one of the most valuable things that we have, you know, in our countries, which is a sense of being part of something bigger and the solidarity that flows from that and the, the coordination, the cooperation and the brotherhood, sisterhood that flows from that. And they hijack it and they use it as a stick to beat off any kind of criticism, including from within. So that's what I resist. And I knew when I wrote this essay that it was, well, I, again, went back and forth because I was like, is this, my, my friend Jockey calls them kitchen conversations. Is this a conversation that I need to have, you know, privately with other Africans? Um, is this a conversation that needs to be in a book that's going to be read by people who maybe don't have the context? Um, and don't understand where the criticism is coming from. Um, and I guess we'll find out in a year <laughs> whether I made the right decision. But for now, I left the essay in there because, again, I think people need to be made uncomfortable and not just clutch onto platitudes, but actually look at the reality and start to question it. How can we, how can, Omar al-Bashir used Pan-Africanism to say, I cannot be prosecuted for crimes against humanity against Africans. Like, how do we sit in peace with that, you know, thing, like that tension? And, and sometimes maybe you just kind of have to drag your business in the street so that people um, wake up and realize mm -hmm. that, you know, there is something going on and, and we have to be honest about it because I just think that a lot of people, again, we, we have this tendency to collapse. It's like the way Americans sort of collapse into the American dream and America is the greatest country in the world. And then you're like, how, when one third of, you know, the black population in Florida has been wrongly incarcerated, has been incarcerated for various reasons. Like what is greatness if poor people, you know, are sitting in line for how many days to get, um, uh, you know, these myths of greatness, these myths mm -hmm. of perfection have to be interrogated and have to be unpacked and have to be unraveled if we are to have any hope of constructing a brighter future, a more inclusive future and a more just future. So, that is why I thought, you know what? I write as an African. I am a Pan-Africanist. I sit in Nairobi and I write these things. And I think people who are not on the continent don't always understand the urgency of some of these things. And for me, that essay is really about the urgency of saying, we have to reclaim this thing. We have to reclaim this ideology. We have to get it back from it. this, whatever is happening right now. Yeah. And um, again, I think the, 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 the bit that I really liked, that this, this is when you were in Haiti and, um, and you're reflecting and saying that we are better than the stories that are told about us, if I get that right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, one of the things, again, that you've really... Um, you know, kind of spent, and I know, in fact, so here's the thing. I know the first word, uh, literally the first thing you say in your book is that this is not a travel memoir. 
Yes. <laughs> but but I I found it. I actually read it as a travel memoir, to be honest, because oh. I was literally, you know, walking with you on the streets of Botswana, you in the markets and crossing borders to Togo, and you know, seeing the sunset in the Sahara, and okay. you know, and and all that. But it was kind of um, uh, what I found really. You know, it was kind of like a journey where, you know, you have a bit of physical movement, um, but then you stop and then you have some really deep uh, uh, reflection. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you said that, you know, when you're talking about Pan-Africanism and you're saying about how it is centered, uh, you know, it's basically, it's it's more a very patriarchal, man-driven vision of, of of Africa, and one of the things that you do you do challenge. Uh, I think your question you ask is, and this is when you're talking about tribe, and you say, what does tribe look like if your central reference object is not a, is a is not a man but a woman? And I just wonder whether how would Pan Africanism look like if yeah. if it was women driving it that's a fantastic question and it's one that i i think about a great deal because it's the cornerstone of what i'm trying to build as a personal philosophy um i think for one it would be it would pay more attention to the labor that goes into keeping our societies alive i think women's work gets routinely diminished and rendered invisible. And it's women, you know, when one of the great examples is like in in, in pastoralist societies, it's women who do, who build houses, right? So in the Maasai community, community, in the Oromo brand, it's the women who build the houses because it's the women who stay. The community is the women. So as the men are are off, you know, um, hurting and, and, you know, going away for days in it, it's the women who build and I think women build communities everywhere and it, I, I'm very sensitive to you know western feminism and the constructs that go into that so I'm this is from a post-colonial feminist lens the labor that women put together put into keeping our societies alive I think would be rendered more visible I think people would be more sensitive to the fact that identity is fluid and is not necessarily something you know this mythical idea and it's not an African idea it's a global idea that somehow there's something essential that exists in the male gene that is passed on to children um, when they are born and I think the fact that identity women's identities are so fluid and change you know you get married you lose your ethnic identity you um you lose your last name you know in in western societies um I think having that centered that philosophy centered on women's experiences would challenge this existentialist idea of how identity flows and how it moves through generations. Um, I think it would make us more sensitive to because when when conflict happens, women suffer tremendous risk and tremendous vulnerabilities. And I think centering on the experiences of women in public life, in you know pan-Africanism would make us more, more careful about starting wars, it would make us more careful about inviting conflict, about sending people's children halfway around the world to go and fight wars 
that they don't understand um, and they can't defend. So, I mean, I don't have a complete answer, but for me, my practice as a feminist is an invitation to start building philosophy from the experience of people who are removed from power. And the largest, you know, 51% of the world's population, the largest group of people who are removed from power are women. So that's where I start from. And, and I hope that, that now this philosophy of human mobility will sort of be shaped around women's experiences, which is why I put myself as a woman at the center of this book. It was not comfortable. I didn't like it. <laughs> Um, can I just say that, uh, you know, again, thank you for, for joining us today. And if you have any questions uh, for Nanjala, please just drop them in the uh, um, Q&A box and I'll definitely uh, read them out. So, so here's the thing. So about uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I read an extract of, uh, of, of the book uh, on the Guardian website. Uh, that was before my copy arrived. And... Mm. I noticed they used a picture of you uh, hiking in Nepal and you were there smiling and looking like you're having a good time. But then there were, your account of this trip in the book was anything but. Uh, I mean, you almost lost your life. And you later on after this incident, um, uh, you, know, dis, dis, you know, you talked about racism and being raced. So what, Maybe I think it'd be great for you to just, just yeah. you know, obviously tell us what those two concepts mean and why is it important to know the difference? So in some ways, those I make the separation as an effort at extending grace to people who live in places where the, the structures, the power structures of racism, but you know, racism is an act of violence. It's an act of structural violence and is, is framed around race and is framed around all of these structures. But what about structures whereby the power differential isn't so dramatic? It's, you know, racism is a projection of power. It's not so dramatic. And really it's not coming from a place of trying to do violence that is coming from a place where people just don't know. So a lot of the race, race and again, I, I make it very clear in the beginning of the book that I'm not a scholar of race. This is not like something that I've spent, you know, 40, 50 years sort of researching and whatever. But I, I, I as I've moved through the world and as I've traveled in poor countries, poorer even than the country that I come from, I have experienced people who exist outside the frameworks of racism and, and power dynamics that still it don't understand or don't have the tools to process difference in the elegant sort of complete way that we would want them to. So I'm in Nepal, I am on the slopes of Mount Everest. I'm talking to a person who you know, barely finished high school and lives in this remote village. I was there on the busiest climbing season in history. In the most people that Everest has ever had in April, um, 2019. And I'm one of three black people that I ran into on this entire trip. 
literally thousands of people, thousands of people are making this trek to, to base camp. And I literally, I, I, I can't think of another situation. Even when I was in Vienna, I ran into more black people. And so when someone is in that context, can you really ascribe the same intentions, the same um, frameworks, concepts of racism as you would to someone who is in the streets of New York, who has been around black people, who knows that, you know, black people, Asian people, people of different racial backgrounds are, are, are human and are complete and whatever, and is choosing to be a racist. Are those two things qualitatively the same? I don't think so. And I think what I don't want people to take from the, the Nepal story is that people in Nepal are racist because that's where people tend to go, right? You have an, a, this experience, it hinges on race. And the first thing they conclude is that the entire society is racist. And I just feel like when you are moving away from places where race has been so intertwined with um, public life and politics and power and all of that, when you go to places where um, people are more, it's more that they're struggling to process difference, is that they're struggling, they don't really have the framework to process difference. I feel a burden to extend some kind of grace towards them. And, and my version of extending that grace is to say, there's something that you've done here and it hinges on my race. And the outcome for me is dangerous. And the outcome for me is life or death. And you have to understand that. But I, 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 I don't, I don't know. It just, it was a way of me to try and reconcile those things. Um, you know, when I go to, you know, remote places, rural places and I'm hiking and I'm by myself, you, people have hard time processing difference. And I feel like that person is different from the person who has power, has knowledge, has everything, and is choosing, is making that active choice to be a racist. Um, so that's, that's kind of what's happening there. And um, I don't know if the scholars of race will agree with me, um, you know, but I, I feel like it's, it's, it's the fair thing to do, you know? It's the fair thing to do, I think, to, to give people that grace and that room to be like, well, maybe what was happening here was a little bit different. But, but the outcome find, was the same. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you find, um, it's an obvious question, but uh, don't you find just that constant need to, uh, you know, do some sort of performance to justify your existence, to um appear non-threatening or to kind of um try and brush Make away any any of those you know preconceived stereotypes about you i mean it is exhausting isn't it it's exhausting it's exhausting and that is part of the reason why i when i'm traveling for leisure i do prefer to travel in africa because I just don't have to carry that baggage with me. It's exhausting and it's unfair. And I hope that 
even as I've taken people on this journey of these different power dynamics and these different structural dynamics, that where people end up is where I end up, which is be nicer, hmm. be kinder, be fair. Because I think people don't understand how much harm racism inflicts on other people. And I think people don't always, and they, 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 the first thing, like I give the, the story that, you know, what happened in New York, the first instinct for a lot of people, a lot of white people, um, and even a lot of people who are, um, you know, Asia, this happened in India as well, is to ask the person who has been the victim to calm down and to say, you know, don't take it too personally, to, to explain it away. But that harm is real. And, and, and you're basically seeing a person and adding another burden onto them and saying, now it's, it's your responsibility to show maturity and to show kindness when you have been the victim of harm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's difficult and it's, it's hard and it's unpleasant. And I, 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 there, there, I say this in the book and I, you know, there are many people who have written much more eloquently than I have about this issue and who have spent more time thinking about it. My, what I have in the book is really my reaction and my processing and my trying to make sense of the world um, in that moment. And where I come down on it is even after all of these things, when your friends, because this happened to me, when your friends, when your family, when people tell you that racism has caused them harm, it's not your job to dismiss that. And it's not your job to say, you know, be nicer. Hmm. Your job is because it's not your place to invalidate people's experiences. It's your place to show empathy and to show kindness. And I hope what I've set people up for through these sequence of essays is to get to the point where they feel that too, that actually the harm is real, the experiences are valid, even if I don't have the intellectual tools to process them because I've never experienced them myself. Okay. I want to bring in, uh, thank you so much for sending the questions you have so far. Uh, Probably just one question I wanted to ask you mm. is, um, you know, these, you know, like Black Lives Matter, just mm. as, um, you know, just those words have become very uh, controversial mm. to some people. And I am just curious, it's a very obvious question, but I'm just curious about your reflection. What, what does Black Lives Matter mean to you? I think Black Lives Matter is a declaration of fact. And I think it's an urgent declaration of fact in a world where facts have become nebulous and facts have become politically um, poisoned. I think Black Lives Matter is a rallying cry for a reset in a world where structural inequality had become so normalized and so, you know, blithely accepted 
even in the face of tremendous evidence to the contrary. I hope that Black Lives Matter becomes completely integrated into the politics, policies, orientations at every level of life in government because I think that people don't realize how its opposite, which is Black Lives Don't Matter, had become incorporated into its public life in many places in the world. And I spend a lot of time in the Mediterranean Sea because even this year, we just saw this. We see the EU going, people in the EU going, Black Lives Matter in the same week that European governments make a decision to allow people, African people to die. And we see uh, politicians crying Black Lives Matter, but not really formalizing it as praxis, not really formalizing it as this is how we prove that Black Lives Matter. So people want to resist it. People of bad intent are resisting it because the prospect of equality means giving up a measure of privilege. You have to give something up for people to be equal. But the alternative, which is resisting equality, which is pushing back against the idea of equality, is completely unsustainable. It's unjust. So I, I love the Black Lives Matter movement as a great example of what contemporary philosophy is. It's not just a catchphrase, it's a philosophy. It's a way of thinking about structures. It's a way of thinking about society. It's a way of thinking about politics. It's a way of thinking about things. And I, I love that it came from it's being driven by young people. And I love that it's, it's irreverent and it's protest driven. And I love all that because fundamentally, I hope that what people pick up in the book is the idea that we build things, we have politics, small p politics to justify the things that we build. But we build those things, we can unbuild them and we can build back better. And the way we do that is by going to the root and asking the radical questions, and the radical questions about injustice, inequality, fairness. So yeah, I, 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 I was asked to write the Black Lives Matter essay, but I just thought, this is already a lot. <laughs> this is already a lot. <laughs> um, let people process this and then we can do that one. Great. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so the questions have started streaming in. Thank you guys for uh, sending them. So I'll start with the first one. Uh, hi, Nanjala. What positive trends in immigration policies, uh, whether on the continent or in the West, have you noticed of late or read about that give you some hope as an African woman traveler or even for the dis disempowered like refugees? Or is it looking dystopian? <laughs> The only element that I find dystopian is the extent to which the exclusion guys are drowning out the inclusion guys. But the reason why I had the Burkina Faso essay in there was to show that not only do we have different ways of thinking about these things on the continent and in other parts of the world, but there is a practice of welcoming travelers. There's a practice of welcoming refugees. There is a practice, it's there, but these guys who want to exclude and to have 
rigid borders that have all the money, have all the power, have all the influence. So you look at the reorganization that's happening in the Sahel and the amount of money that's coming from the EU to influence policy and politics in the Sahel. And you have to ask yourself, does that mean that people in the Sahel didn't have principles and policies on migration? People who have been doing you know, trans-Saharan trade for 300 years, for 400 years. So I think about how you know, Zambia accepted Angolan refugees and gave them citizenship. Tanzania, the same thing with Burundian citizenship. Um, you know, look at what's happening in Sudan right now with, with Ethiopian, Ethiopians fleeing the conflict in Northern Ethiopian Tigray, going to Sudan and very poor. I've been to that region of Sudan, the Barif, sort of down to Hamad yet. And these are poor people who don't have very much and are saying to these refugees crossing the border, you can stay with us, don't worry about money. We'll make your life easier, we'll make things comfortable. And so there are examples. We just have to keep articulating these examples to the people who have power and money and influence and to stop this dystopian nightmare that is, we have to stop stumbling into this disaster and be conscious about turning things around in the other direction. Uh, the next one, how do you deal with constantly feeling like an outsider, like on guard, hyper-visible, while traveling as a black woman? I would love to travel globally and solo, and solo travel. However, my negative experience traveling in Morocco, where I was constantly reminded of my blackness, has put me off. And I had the feeling of being the only black person from miles. I'm from London, so I have grown up in a very diverse, uh, in very diverse places. You know, honestly, the, I've never been to Morocco. Um, I've been, of the Maghreb, I've only been to Tunisia and Egypt. Um, this is, again, when I travel for leisure, I mostly travel in Africa. Like, mostly. Not entirely. I've been to parts of Asia. I've been to, part, I've, I've been to Central America. Um, but I think what you will have to do to get that experience. What I learned is, and this is why the, what the Haiti essay covers, is I had to unlearn what other people had told me Haiti was in order to have an amazing time in Haiti. Because what other people had told me Haiti was, was being filtered through a very specific life experience. And the experience that I had in Haiti was tremendous welcome. I went to, <laughs> I didn't put this in the book, but, um, Haiti has two carnivals. So they have the regular carnival that happens around Easter. And then they have Carnival de Fleurs, which happens around June, July. It's a summer thing. And um, I went to Carnival and I had my big DSLR. And I basically talked my way into one of the stands. And Carnival is basically just a parade. People have been practicing for like six months and they do their dance and they're playing their music and whatever. Talked my way into one of the stands and everybody was so excited because it was like, oh my gosh, you're from Kenya. This is fantastic. Yes, please come in and, and you know, hang out with us. And the president uh, at the time sort of came in um, and was, you know, dancing with people in the streets. And like, the thing is the guidebooks had said, avoid downtown Port-au-Prince. Don't go there. It's dangerous. It's da 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 And 
I had met people who worked for like all the different, um, uh, not all, but a number of different embassies and a bunch of embassies had rules that their citizens were not allowed to go to downtown Port-au-Prince because it's dangerous. I had the best time of my life. The, the, it started raining and we danced in the rain, like torrential rain. And the parade went on until very late in the night. And the music was fantastic and the food was fantastic and whatever. And I actually ended up going to downtown Port-au-Prince four, three, four times, uh, three, four weekends afterwards. But to access that, I had to unlearn. I had to let go of the crutches that I had been given in order to help me navigate, to quote unquote, help me navigate Haiti. So if that's the kind of experience that you want to have, look, I'm not going to romanticize it to you and say that everything is always peachy keen and you never have to have your guard up and you never have to worry and you never have to pay attention. But I think that there is more to the world that is open to you than you probably realize because so much of what you're reading and hearing about travel and maybe even the places that you've experienced because you've been told this is can't miss, you must go here, are blocking out so much amazingness that is just beyond the grasp and the reach of those particular narratives. Good. Um, how much do you think that colonialist and imperialist ideas about race play out in the experiences? Uh, I guess there's a question about, um, I'll, I'll read that again. How much do you think that mm -hmm. colonialist and imperialist ideas about race play out in the experiences like you had in Nepal? A lot. One of my friends, um, friends, uh, friends, I don't know, heroes, I don't know how to describe her. Um, she's also one of the people who graciously provided the blurb for this book. Ivana Diambo-War has written this amazing book called The Dragonfly Sea. And The Dragonfly Sea is basically looking at the relationship between, a lot of people know about the transatlantic trade, but there was also the Indian Ocean trade. And it's looking at the historical connections. It's a novel, it's fiction, but it's based on research and it's based on facts. And it's about the relationship between Asia and Africa before colonization. And it recasts, the. it really, really writes against this idea that history and stuff in Africa started with the arrival of Europeans. Because the connections between Asia and Africa, Yemen, you know, the Gulf uh, and the East Coast of Africa go back 14th, 15th century. And it was not a relationship that was predicated on occupation, at least, you know, based on the research, not based, predicated on occupation, not predicated on subjugation, predicated on trade and exchange. So, you know, you look at how tea moves from China to India to Africa, and it starts off as one kind of story and ends up being another kind of story because of the influence of colonization. Um, so there's a lot of fantastic research out there about what life was like before colonization that really speaks to the idea that the power dynamics would have been cast differently um, or were cast differently. Um, and I think it's important to read and elevate those stories so that people can be reminded that a different way is possible and a different imagination is possible. 
Okay. Uh, is there a country you visited where you thought you'd be exhausted by people's ignorance or racism that surprised you because it was actually easier to be there than you had braced yourself for? Southern Italy. Southern Italy was not what I expected at all. I had been to um, Milan and I had been even to Rome. And I did not have, I had a great time in Milan with my friends. I didn't have the easiest time in Milan outside that circle. Um, but Southern Italy, and I write about this in the book, Sicily was not what I expected at all. Um, in, I, I had an Airbnb and I was doing all of this research and these conversations with, with, with you know, migrants and refugees and everything. And then on the last, second to last night, I messaged the Airbnb fellow to say, you know, I'm getting ready to leave. Da, 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 da. And he was like, I'm going to come over and say goodbye. And so he came over and I explained what I'd been doing. And he was like, oh, I wish I had known this, what you're doing. Because it turned out that he was a member of an collective that was gathering the harsh attending a meeting of an anarchist collective in Palermo and all of these young passionate people did not speak any English and I do not speak any Italian I can say spaghetti and lasagna and that's about the, the length and breadth of it one person did speak enough English and they're really trying to get me to understand that they want a different approach to these things than what their governments are doing. It was the same experience I had on the docks. Like they, I had gone to Southern Italy with a very different expectation of what I would find there. The mayor telling, I, I, I was the only black, you know, writer journalist at the docks and I ran up to him and I said, I was expecting to get one of those speeches, you know, it's about law and order. It's about this, this. And the first thing he said to me was, I think 50 years down the line, European countries are going to be charged with crimes against humanity for what they're doing on the Mediterranean Sea. I was like, I didn't, I didn't expect you to say, I didn't, what? And he had this, just, he really just like broke it down, said this, 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 this. So it was it was just not what I, I had in mind um, based on everything that I'd seen about what Matteo Salvini was doing in Italy and how these laws kept getting passed and how these policies kept getting passed. Um, it was not what I expected. Uh, is it still utopian and unattainable to think of a future where people will be able to freely move around the world, especially for temporary economic reasons, as advocated by Nigel Iris in Thinking the Unthinkable? I hope not. It does seem kind of tough, though, doesn't it? It seems increasingly elusive. And I hope that this book is part of that broader effort by dreamers and believers to make people stop and think about the nightmare that we're, we're rolling into. And I have to believe that even if it's not realized in my generation, that maybe one day there will be a generation that will have a better experience of these things because of the work and the groundwork that we've laid today 
and tomorrow and the day after that. And that's kind of what keeps me going. I know it seems, I, I, as I say in the opening chapter, this book is part of a process of me saying goodbye to working in this space in a formal sense. But I hope that at the very least, my experiences have given someone else the tools to, like I've marked the space, a little space, tiny space. And then the next person will come and push that a little bit further and push that a little bit further. So. Okay. Uh, Nanjala, listening to you, I can't wait for my book to come through the mail. Uh, you raise important questions about migrations in a, migration in a way that is largely unexplored. I see why you say this is not a travel memoir. Uh, my question, do you think this book is likely to change the mindset of people with right-wing and nationalist, nationalist ideals? No, and they're not my target audience. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I don't believe in arguing with people who want to debate your humanity. But what I hope that this book will do is give ordinary people who these conversations have been so hidden within policymakers and university people and you know experts. And I hope what I've done is that ordinary people of good conscience will read it and feel empowered to be part of the conversation and feel empowered to be part of pushing back. So it's not for the right wingers, it's not for them. Like I I <laughs> What I can hope for mostly is that good people feel empowered to speak up and to stop because they're shouting and we're whispering. They're shouting about their anti, you know, whatever, and I hate everybody and I hate women, whatever, and we're whispering our defense. I hope this book gives someone, and myself also, it's, it's a, my effort to shout also and say a different way is possible. Hmm. Mm, interesting. The the um, uh, one one of the things that uh, came to mind when I was reading your book uh, as well was this thing I always see people uh, tweet about. They always say, usually with a nice picture of uh, uh, an African city, and it's usually something like the Africa they don't the media does not show you. <laughs> and you know, there's a there's a there's a bit where you really talk about, especially pictures and the use of uh, images uh, in the media. What what would you want journalists uh, like myself to take away from this book? What's our role in the future that you see? <sighs> Two words. It's complicated. I hope that more journalists give African countries, African people, African societies space to be complicated. I think that one of the many unfair ways that Africa gets treated, Africans get treated in the press, both in Africa, right? Because it's both, it's, it's, it happens in both extremes. It's, it's the denialism on the continent of everything's great, why are you being a hater? And then on the outside is everything is terrible, Africa is about to implode. And I hope that as part of reclaiming the space for African humanities, humanity, that I've invited journalists and people who have the power to tell stories to allow Africa to be complicated because it's dehumanizing to flatten out one point whatever billion people into these overly simplified, politically expedient, but ultimately toxic narratives about you know, what is possible, what is not possible, 
um, you know, you go take a picture of one street and say this is the Africa they don't show you. It's like, well, yeah, but then, you know, there's the other side of the street or the other extreme, you know, oh, another failed. You saw this last week where it was like, oh, this election in Tanzania was terrible. The election in Uganda was terrible. And then Burkina Faso just did this, quietly did this amazing election, you know, after ending a 27-year dictatorship. And it was like, yeah, well. <laughs> so what I hope that I've claimed space for is for Africans to be allowed to be human and as part of that to be complicated. And, you know, my, my initial, my first question to you was about, um, you know, kind of like where you'll go next uh, when the world opens up. Um, so your book, your book in the, con you know, in the context, it's been published in a very interesting time. Uh, you know, a time of you absolutely, who knows what's coming next. I'm just curious, what's, what's kind of like your view of, what the world will look like uh, next year. Um, and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, before you answer that question, which is kind of really interesting because last year about this time, you and I had, I interviewed you. Yeah. And, and it was amazing because you were almost spot on. Well, not almost spot on, but you were spot on <laughs> because you told me, this was literally before before COVID, uh, you, t you told me that it's, it's going to be a, you know, tough year for the world and, yeah. and it certainly has. So definitely the people who are listening, this is uh, not just a writer, <laughs> but uh, a prophet. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so tell me, so what's, what, what, what are we heading to in 2021? Wow. No um, pressure, right? No pressure. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish, I wish I were more optimistic, mm. but I really, st I still think things are going to get, I think we're in for a tough year. And the reason why I say that I think we're in for a tough year is because many of the structural issues that have made this pandemic play out the way that it has, have not been addressed. You still have a significant, a critical mass of people who are so immersed in propaganda and immersed in you know, fake news, for lack of a better phrase, that they do not even accept that the pandemic is real. And all those people have to get vaccinated and treated in order for a vaccine to actually have an impact on the trajectory of the, of the disease. I think there are a lot of people in the world who are dealing with loss. I think there are a lot of people in the world who are dealing with um, frustration. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their incomes. And I think that there's going to be a lag phase of people trying to heal from that unraveling and trying to heal from that. Um, I'm not sure that enough politicians have learned. You know, I look at politics in the UK. I look at politics in Kenya. I look at politics in the US. And I'm like, have you actually learned anything? from everything that's happened in the last 12 months. And I'm not sure that politicians have. Um, but I, having said all of that, I think about all of the amazing young people who have gone to the streets, who have gone to the courtrooms, who have gone and have said, we want a different future. For a lot, for a generation, you know, I'm a millennial, Gen Z, 
and I guess we'll call them what Gen AA, <laughs> um, climate change is not an abstract thing. It's actually going to be a life or death thing. And they're saying enough is enough. So I, I take a lot of inspiration in the fact that people are not going to accept um, things lying down. I just, I worry that the people who currently have power don't seem to have learned anything, um, still want to do things the same way, still want to prioritize economic development, economic growth, whatever that means, over well-being and health and justice. Um, but the and 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 to not make that entirely depressing, I think the obligation on all of us who want a different future is to keep building so that even if it doesn't happen in our generation, that a next generation might have a better chance of survival mm -hmm. um, than they do right now. Yeah. And and how do you think that will affect travel, for example? Everything, this is again one of those cases where. I just, I wish people were learning more. Business travel is never going to be the same again. And I have to confess, I'm the kind of person who ping pongs through, you know, different capitals, who has in the last year. I have done a lot of trips that I, I, I need to plant a lot of trees. Let me put it that way. I need to plant a lot of trees. Um, it's, you can't do that if you have a two week, you know, um, solitary, you know, whatever, if you have two weeks uh, to before you're allowed to move around. Business travel is definitely going to change. And unfortunately, business travel, those inflated uh, tickets make airlines a lot of money. So the knock-on effect is that uh, econom economy, you know, coach, is going to become more unpleasant mm -hmm. for everybody as they try to fit more people in the planes. I look at what Qantas said about making COVID, negative, COVID vaccines mandatory. The barriers are going to get higher. And the thing that you saw with the vaccines is, I, except for the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Oxford vaccine, the other two vaccines are being produced by commercial entities and are being produced in a form that's going to make them very dis difficult to distribute in poor countries. So the trajectory as it stands is that rich countries are going to develop a vaccine. Rich countries are going to hoard the vaccine. Poor countries are going to be banned from entering rich countries because they don't have the vaccine. And a lot of organizations are campaigning against this, right? So I don't want it all to be like dour. Like MSF is campaigning against this. The WHO is campaigning against this. The African Union is campaigning against this. So people are seeing this disaster unfolding. But what those, that trajectory is, is that the idea, when I write about visas, this underlying idea of exclusion becomes normalized and formalized as a bureaucracy, when in actual fact, it is an excuse for structural racism to become a reason to keep people out. And by every indication, given that African governments after having this successes are now stumbling and African people are increasingly exposed to this virus, we're gonna get stuck holding the baby. Mm. And that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how I, I see what COVID is going to do to African travelers. 
Um, it, which, and it was already hard enough, you know. It was already like barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier. Uh, to apply, a lot of British people don't know that to apply for a long stay visa in the United Kingdom, uh, you have to, if you're from an African country, you have to take a tuberculosis test. In Kenya, the tuberculosis test costs $50. It's only done in one clinic in a very remote part of the Nairobi, a very wealthy Nairobi suburb. So you have to get transport to get there. Um, and you have to, it's only valid for three months. So you do the test and you have to apply for your visa within that three months. If you don't do it within those three months, then you have to go back and do it again. Uh, <laughs> that kind of thing with COVID is what I'm, 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 I'm seeing because it's, it's, it, people haven't learned and haven't internalized that this is not just about, that, that there's something in there that isn't just about bureaucracy. There's something that's being satisfied. Um, so yeah, I wish I could be more, I should, don't, it's not all dour. There's an essay yeah. in there about peeing. Um, <laughs> I, tried to, I tried to, I tried to break up. <laughs> I tried to like, sad, 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 sad. Oh God, I've depressed everybody. Here's a, here's a slightly lighter essay sort of, so that you don't feel um, overwhelmed because travel is great. And I mean, one, one, one thing, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, if we can figure out a way to make it more sustainable and more inclusive and more just, I think everybody should travel. Yeah, definitely. And and one of the things that I think you talked about uh, uh, was how to overcome your fear, uh, because mm-hmm. I think that's where it starts with, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think, and especially, you know, someone asked the question about, as a Black woman, um, traveling I've had all these negative experiences and and I would say learning how to distinguish between genuine fear things that you should be afraid of and things where the fear is a projection of someone else's anxieties but is is not an objective thing is one of the most important life skills that travel has given me is the difference between I'm afraid, so I'm not going to do this, and I'm afraid, but I'm going to do this anyway. That is what makes people brave. That is what bravery is. The ability to act in spite of your fear and the ability to distinguish between those two different types of fear. And the travel will teach you that very quickly because it will change your assessment of risk it will change your assessment of security, which is in many ways, again, a subjective judgment, but it will also change your perception of what is worth doing and what is not worth doing. You know, I'm not sure that I will ever go back to Everest. I really am not sure that I would ever, I just doesn't seem like it was, it would be worth it. Would I jump out of a plane? Yeah. <laughs> I think absolutely, you know, um, so that's, that I think is, I try to break it up and I, I hope that yes. at the very least people get that from, from the book. 
So I, I remember just, um, you know, uh, in the summer when uh, we had all the protests um, following the uh, the murder of, uh, of George Floyd. And I remember somebody say that the reason why there was this kind of like groundswell of, um, you know, support for Black Lives Matter, diverse support, uh, like never before, was because of the pandemic, because people were mostly at home and pretty much uh, paying attention. Um, and, yeah. and that's why, you know, the moment met the pandemic, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And therefore that's what we had. And, and I just wonder, I know you've kind of like, you know, thrown a bit of caveats here about, you know, have our leaders really learned anything about um, the structural inequalities and, and, and the problems that pretty much surfaced because of the pandemic. But I just wonder whether, if that is true, obviously the people are paying attention. Do you <laughs> see, do, are you pretty much optimistic that maybe it might not be as, as bad as you, as you think, that maybe that's where you have a bit of glimmer of hope? I, I do think that there is more space for racial justice conversations in the world today than there was 10 years ago. And a big part of that is the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. which took a lot of conversations that had been happening, you know, like the prison abolitionist conversation had been happening in universities had been happening in communities where people had been incarcerated. So families of, uh, uh, you know, relatives of societies, organizations supporting prisoners. And it had been happening within these closed groups because it seemed like such a far-fetched idea. Mm. And uh, about two months ago, Mariam Kaba, who is one of the most amazing organizers I've ever had the privilege of meeting, had a, op-ed in the New York Times calling for prison abolition. Like that is a trajectory that I think 10 years ago, we would not even have seen that people, you know, in their suburbs, in their middle-class, you know, white people in their middle-class, but also black people and people of all backgrounds reading about prison abolition, developing a language to discuss defund the police developing the tools to have these conversations. Parliaments, even though they're citing to it negatively, you know, in the UK, uh, uh, citing to it negatively, but having conversations that had been in this closed space for so long. So I do think that there is more space today than there was even five, four years ago. Do I think that the pandemic is part of that? Arguably, I think, it's made, even if there's that sort of st structural superficial argument of people had more time and people were at home and all of that stuff. But I think also on a deeper level, it's given people, a f the, the movement building is giving people a framework to process injustice. And I think a lot of people are realizing how unjust the society they live in are. The fact that Amazon has made record-breaking profits because of the pandemic but small businesses 
are closing and firing people, that there are all of these centers of economics that are sucking up resources and growing at exponential rates, but ordinary people are suffering. So I think that racial justice conversation, because the thing about racial justice, the thing about gender justice, is that it's a, it's a framework. It's not just about, well, let's give women equality and then we stop the conversation. It's about undoing oppression in all of its forms. And, and this is how, this is an example of how this oppression is structured and how it works. So I think people who are starting to engage with that are then looking at, I was at a Black Lives Matter movement, da, 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 da. hey, I'm not Black, but I am working class and my factory is being closed down because of you know, this structural injustice. Or I'm a housekeeper and I'm not being allowed to stay home but my because my boss who work is working from home, I have to go and take care of her kids and expose myself to that. You know, there's, it's giving people an entry point to start to look at their own circumstances in different ways. And so that's good, right? That's good. The, the, the long-term goal has always been a more just future. So if this is the entry point, then fantastic. I think there's always going to be a pushback, even though well intended, and yeah, try to convince everyone, or you just convince those who are willing. I think convince those who are willing, convince those who have power, um, and hope that what you do is decrease the space for injustice and isms so much that it becomes irrational for people to hold on to them. I think that's the big gamble and the big mistake that we've made in the last 10 years, that we saw this resurgence of misogyny of and mostly online misogyny and racism and, and xenophobia, and we didn't nip it in the bud. Mm. And so it became normalized. So I say, and, and, and that's just my understanding I know other people have different understandings but like on a very basic level I think to myself my job is not to convince every you know white family that black lives matter my job is to make it impossible for people who think that black lives don't matter to be comfortable while expressing those opinions in public it's the job of the people who are related to those people, their family members, their friends, their colleagues, to do that. So everybody has to play their position. Everybody has to do their job. And we make the space for these isms so small that it becomes untenable to hold them or to express them in public. Wow. So that's, that's, I think, the perfect place to, uh, to end that. I can, can definitely bottle that last moment and just <laughs> sell it as a... The perfect way of uh, you know just encapsulating what you you, you cover in your book and uh, like I said um, earlier I, I I really enjoyed it and like I said I know you kind of wonder that it was not a travel memo but for me I, I I felt like it was guiding me as a reader to places where 
you know, I pretty much just got at the door and probably, you know, you opened the door and, you know, I was able to explore and see new things. So, so you. You know, absolutely amazing. And for those who haven't read it, definitely check out uh, the book. And thanks Thank a lot you. for your questions. And Nanjala, again, Asante Sana. And uh, sure. guys, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>